Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. All right, good morning, everybody. I want to welcome everyone here, everybody watching online as well. So we're in the midst of this particular series called Uncomfortable Conversations. And what we're doing is we're tackling some tough, often emotionally charged topics. And this morning, I thought I would address a few questions that I'm often asked as a pastor. Questions like this, well, if the Bible says that people must believe in Jesus in order to be saved, then what about the baby who who dies in the womb and, and never has an opportunity to hear or respond to or believe in the gospel message? Or or what about those who are mentally handicapped and and they just can't think maturely enough to process God and eternity and the truths of the gospel? Or, Or what about the heathen who lives and dies in some foreign land far away from any Christian influence so they never even get an opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus? Okay, those are some of the questions I'd like to tackle today, uh, all in 30 minutes time. Okay, this is no small task. So please bear with me. Are you guys ready? Uh, Have you recovered from your post-Turkey tryptophan coma, whatever you were in? All right, you got your coffee because today we're going to go deep. This is actually a summary of an hour-long seminar I gave at the Grace Evangelical Society National Conference. So you guys have got to really be sharp. I'm going to go fast. A lot of passages of scripture here, but I think you can handle it. So here we go. Let me begin by giving you a little bit of a theological framework. Two key biblical points to establish from the get-go, that Jesus died for all and that people are called to believe in Jesus to be saved. Okay, let's begin with the first point. The Bible teaches that Jesus' atonement, his payment for our sins, was universal or unlimited. He died for the sins of the whole world. In other words, Jesus Christ has already paid the price for everyone's sins. The only question is whether or not they choose to accept that gift. Now, there are those who say that Christ's blood was not shed for everyone, that he only died for a select few, a select group of people. That view is known as limited atonement. And while we know that not everyone will accept Jesus' offer of salvation, not everyone will be saved, still the blood that Jesus shed on that cross was sufficient for everybody. God was not blocking access to heaven for all but a select few. That would actually fly in the face of God's attributes of love and immutability, okay? And clearly kind of challenge and contradict many passages of Scripture that say that Jesus' death on the cross was a ransom payment for all mankind. 1 Timothy 2, 5 to 6 says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for, say it with me, all men. When you see that term men in the Greek, that's mankind, men and women alike. The testimony given in its proper time. You know, there's an all-encompassing word in the Greek language, and it refers to the entirety of all creation, which would include every human being on this planet, It's the Greek term cosmos, and it's translated as the world in our English Bibles. So listen to this passage that clearly spells out for whom Christ's body and blood was given. 1 John 2, 1 to 2 says this, 
My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Okay, he's talking to believers here, right? He says, my dear children, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus paid the price for the sins of those who believe in him, and he paid the price for the sins of those who reject him. Like the gift has been offered to all mankind, even those who refuse it, even those who walk away from it. You know, even the false prophets who, who work against God and will never be in heaven are said to have been bought by Jesus, even though they deny him, even though they reject his payment for them. Listen to 2 Peter 2, 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. People, Jesus Christ paid the price for everyone. And that leads us to point two. People are given the responsibility to either believe in or reject Jesus as their savior. You know, the Bible talks about something called the unpardonable sin. You may have heard about this before. If you look at that in context, I believe the unpardonable sin refers to rejecting the Holy Spirit as he's trying to lead you to Jesus, as he's trying to lead you to put your faith in Jesus. And that would just make sense because if Jesus has already paid the price for all of your sins, then the only sin that would be left that would be unpardonable would be to reject that payment, to reject Jesus as your Savior. John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Only two categories of people here. Did you catch that? Those who believe and those who reject. You know, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says that people are without excuse if they do not respond to the revelation of God in creation and in their conscience. Check this out. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. I mean, God has revealed himself to mankind in a general way, in nature and in their conscience. And God can and does find a way, whether it's through the Bible, a missionary, an angel, a deathbed experience, to get the specific gospel message to those who seek him. I believe that with all my heart. In fact, Jesus himself actually said this. Look at John 12, 32. He said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw, say it with me, everyone to myself. I will draw all people, some versions say, to myself. So so no one comes to God unless God draws them, but Jesus promises he's not going to leave anybody out. That means no one will ever stand before God with the excuse that the blood of Jesus was not shed for him, was not shed for her. So the basis upon which sinners will be eternally lost is not ultimately their sin but rather their rejection of the provision of salvation that Jesus offered them 
through his death on the cross. John 3, 17 to 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Dr. Robert Leitner once said, the cross's benefits must be appropriated by faith. In other words, the universal provision of redemption does not mean universal salvation. Christ died for all, but not all will be saved. Christ died for all, but the value of his death is applied only to those who believe. And we know we say it here all the time, salvation is a free gift of God received by faith alone. Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And by the way, the Bible's clear that faith is not a work. In fact, faith and works are contrasted over and over again in the Bible. Romans 3.28 says, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The Bible is crystal clear that faith is not a work that contributes in any way to your salvation. Now, faith might result in works, but it's an entirely different entity. Faith is simply the method that God chose to apply the benefits of the cross to those who believe, to apply the covering of the blood of Jesus to us personally. That happens through faith. 1 Timothy 4, 9 to 10 says, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this, we labor and strive. (laughs) We have put our hope in the living God, who is the savior of all men and especially of those who believe. Jesus is the savior of all, but that's especially true for those who accept him as their savior. All right, so those are two foundational biblical truths. First, the death that Jesus died on the cross made provision of salvation possible. He died for all mankind so that all mankind could come to him. But second, people must exercise faith in Jesus to be saved. Now, with those two truths as a backdrop, let's tackle some tough questions. First of all, what about babies who die young? You know, one of the most common questions I hear is, what about babies who don't have the ability, they die before they can reason, they die before they can exercise faith in the gospel message? Well, I believe there is solid biblical evidence that every one of them will be in heaven. Now, we haven't been given all the answers, but the Bible gives us ample evidence that they will be safe in the arms of Jesus. So let me talk for a little bit here. Let me give you some different lines of biblical reasoning for this belief. And first, I'm going to give you one faulty reason, and then I'm going to give you three solid reasons, okay? First of all, here's something false that I often hear about why all babies will be in heaven. Sometimes people will say, well, babies are innocent and not yet guilty of sin. I believe, biblically speaking, that is false. Romans 3.23 says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. You say, does that include my child? Surely my sweet little baby's not a sinner from birth. Well, you're right, in a sense. It actually happened before that, okay? Listen to Psalm 51.5. David says, surely I was sinful, say it with me, at birth, <laughs> surely I was sinful, but, but let's back it up a little bit. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Wow, 
Every person on this planet is steeped in sin from the moment of conception. People's sinful sperm meets sinful egg produces sinful human being. Like we have a sin nature from the moment of conception. Romans 5:12, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. You say, well, how is that possible? People, we all sin in Adam. You and I trace our ancestry back to Adam. And the Bible says that through his seed, we have inherited a sin nature. And that's passed along to us at the moment of conception. Romans 5.18 says the result of one trespass, that would be Adam's sin, was condemnation for all men. That's just the plain and simple truth. Now, that does not mean that babies are as big of sinners as adults, okay? It also doesn't mean that babies are as accountable for their sin. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But, but they are sinful from the get-go, so we can't use that as a reason to give babies a pass. But there are better reasons to consider. How about this one? Let's start with the nature of God. People, God is both just and loving. He is just and he's loving. He balances those attributes perfectly. So God is just, and that means that there has to be a penalty for sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages, the penalty of sin is death. And that just means separation. Death means separation from God here. The wages of sin is death. But 1 Peter 3.18 says Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. So Jesus took care of our sin problem when he died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sin. You say, why? Why did he do that? One word, for God so loved the world. It was his love that drove him to do that. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God's justice demanded a payment. But God's love provided a way out, believing in the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ. But but what about those who seemingly don't have the capacity to believe? How will God's love be demonstrated to them? You know, when Jesus walked this earth, he showed unparalleled love for little children. And so surely he's going to provide some solution to this dilemma for those who cannot comprehend the gospel. Well, that leads us to our second point here. The atonement, the payment for sin. We talked about this. It's universal. It's unlimited. And babies have not rejected that. Babies have not rejected the son. That is true. Remember the unpardonable sin. It's rejecting the Holy Spirit as he's trying to lead you to put your faith in Jesus. Okay, those who don't have the mental capacity to do that, they're not guilty of that sin. Like the blood of Jesus has been shed for all mankind. That includes every child in this world. And babies have not rejected it. Remember the two categories of people in John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Well, those babies have not rejected God, have not rejected the Son. You say, well, have they believed? Okay, hold on to your seats here. This may surprise you. Did you know that the Bible teaches that little children will be in heaven based on their faith? It's true. In Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke, Jesus makes this powerful statement about little children. 
He says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. And here it is. But if anyone causes one of these little ones, what does it say? Who believe in me? Hmm. These little ones believe in Jesus. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Commenting on this particular passage, Dr. Robert Leitner, he was one of my Dallas Seminary professors, he, he made this interesting remark. He, he made the point that little ones here, these little ones aren't old enough to comprehend all the facts of the gospel and make a decision for Christ as their savior. And so he concludes, he says, quote, could it be because the little ones did not oppose the Savior, but instead allowed him to do as he pleased with them, that he viewed their lack of rejection as a reception of him and belief in him. That seems to be the case. You know, the term little children here in the Greek refers to babies, toddlers, maybe preschoolers. We're talking very, very young kids. And they're said to believe in Jesus. Kids have tremendous faith, people. You know, Helen Keller, who was deaf and blind as an infant, she had no way to see, hear, or communicate with people for years. But when she was finally taught to converse, she was asked if she knew about God before she had the ability to communicate with the outside world. And do you know what she said? She said, oh, yes, I've always known him. I just didn't know his name. Isn't that interesting? Children know. They, they have faith. But as they grow up, they, they begin to reject. Now you say, okay, is, is there like a set age of accountability? You ever heard that term before, age of accountability when this happens? I, I personally believe that it's different for each child. And so rather than saying that they are saved at that young age, I would say that little children are safe. Okay, they're safe. Safe, not because they're not sinners, they are. Okay. Safe, not because they've been baptized, Right, baptism doesn't save anybody. They're safe because of the universal sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for them. They're safe because of the love of God, and they're safe because of their childlike faith. Now, oftentimes, children are more sensitive, more in contact with God than we are. That's why the Bible says, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Kids are humble. They're open to God. But we close off that connection with God through our pride. And if you doubt Jesus' incredible love for children, let me just read a few passages to you here. Listen to these. Here's one. Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Wow, the kingdom of heaven belongs to little children. Sounds pretty straightforward to me. How about this one? See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven, whew, 
Their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Angels in the presence of God the Father guard every one of these little ones. Not some children. Don't look down on a single one, Jesus said. I could go on and on, but I think you get the point here. Children seem to be safe up until the age where they choose disbelief over faith. They go straight into the loving arms of Jesus. Every miscarriage, every stillbirth, every abortion, I believe that the Bible teaches that every one of them had a guardian angel and they're going to be in heaven. So so women, if you've had a miscarriage, that little baby is in heaven, okay? If you have a young little one who who passed away, that child is is in heaven. If you have a child who has a, a mental handicap and they can't process the truth of the gospel, I believe that child will be in heaven. The Bible says they're safe. Now, at this point, you you may be thinking, okay, I get it from a theological perspective. You've laid a good groundwork. But Brian, do we have any real-life examples of this in the Bible? Yes, we do. You may recall back in the Old Testament that David and Bathsheba lost their first child shortly after his birth. And it's a very fascinating story, and we don't have time to dig into it completely. But it kind of goes like this. While that child was still sick, okay? The child had been born. It seemed like the child was going to die. The child was sick. David was distraught. David wept. He, he fasted. He prayed. He was a mess. But then all of a sudden, when he found out that that child had died, his demeanor changed completely. The Bible says all of a sudden he perked up. He, he ate. He was at ease. And people were asking, what, what, what's going on here, David? Why, why the change? And listen to 2 Samuel 12, 22 to 23. He, David said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return David knew he would see his baby once again, one day in heaven. No doubts. I will go to him, David said. Now, here's something that's fascinating. You fast forward a little bit. When David's wicked son Absalom died, David did not react that way after his death. You say, why is that the case? There can be a lot of reasons, but I believe one of the reasons was he wasn't so sure about his son Absalom's destination. 2 Samuel 18.33 says this, the king, David, was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David knew that that little baby was protected and would be in heaven. But the adult, he was responsible. Okay, we got to keep moving here. This kind of ties into our next question that we could ask is, what about those who are mentally handicapped? Okay, I believe that the same principles that apply to little children apply to those who are mentally handicapped. A child who grows up into full adulthood but can't really comprehend all the intellectual facts of the gospel message, they can't respond to God's love, that child will be safe. Still sinners, but, but safe. And the exact same principles apply. But I would say this, 
You know, even though we look at that child and we think, well, that child doesn't know a whole lot, that child can't respond very well, and they may not understand a whole lot, God has different ways of communicating to people, and they may understand far, far more than they can ever communicate to us. And then this, if those who are not capable of making a decision, they receive God's grace, they, they receive the gift of eternal life upon death, then what about those who are capable of making a decision, but they've never heard the gospel message? Like, what about the heathen living in some foreign lands? Do the same reasons for believing in the salvation of, of young children or the mentally handicapped apply to this group? No, for the following reason. God, the Bible says, has given to all a very clear revelation of himself through nature and in their conscience. Psalm 19 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Over in the New Testament, Paul references this in Romans 1, 19 to 20. He says, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. All are without excuse. Like even where the gospel and the person of Jesus have never been heard, the Bible says that God is still given to those individuals, God has given to all a clear revelation of himself in nature and in their conscience. And if they choose not to respond to God's lesser revelation in nature and conscience, then God's not gonna grant them the greater revelation of the gospel message. But I will say this, God is just, God is loving, God is good. And so people out there, if they do respond to God's general revelation in nature and in conscience, they say, wow, you know, there must be a God to whom I'm accountable. I'd like to know him. Then I believe God will honor that and provide more specific revelation. So the bottom line is this, when a person reaches that age where they have the intellectual capacity to respond to God's general revelation, from that point forward, that person is responsible for what they do with what they know. The lost heathen is responsible to seek God. A few passages here, Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. God rewards those who seek him. If someone really wants to know the truth about God and they seek the truth about God, God will lead that person to the truth. I believe that with all my heart. Whether it's somebody living right down the road from a church or a heathen in some distant land, God might use a friend, a gospel tract, a, a Bible, a, a missionary. God might use a miracle or an angel God might meet them in a deathbed experience. And we talked about that a number of months ago, all the people who have had these near-death experiences. But those who seek him, God will lead that individual to the truth. I believe that. And let me close with this passage. This is Acts 17, 26 to 27. From one man, 
he, God, made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God is right there. He's right there. Remember Helen Keller, blind and deaf as an infant? When they finally broke through to her, she said, I've always known him. I just didn't know his name. People with proper cognitive abilities know about God intuitively. And so as Paul said in Romans, they are without excuse. They're without excuse. Okay, I made it to the finish line. Congratulations on getting there with me. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, thank you for the men and women here who just drank from a fire hose of theological truth. God, lots to share. And these are deep truths, and we don't have all the answers, but you've given us sufficient answers. That you are a God of love and, and a God of justice, and you balance those in, in a perfect way. God, thank you for your deep, deep love for us, that you would shed your blood for all mankind. You would make heaven, eternal life, forgiveness available to all. And God, I thank you that for those who just don't grow to be old enough or don't have the mental capacity to respond, that your grace is sufficient for them. And then for those who, who do see the truth, and it's evident all around, it's evident in their conscience, it's evident in creation, that they are accountable to seek you. And I know that in your goodness and in your grace, somehow you will reach them. Because as you said, you set them in that exact place at that exact time, even if they're hundreds, thousands of miles away from Christian influence, you are there. You're not far from each one of us. And if people will reach out and seek you, you will find a way. So God, we are just in awe of your word, your truth, the amazing ways in which you reveal what we need to know. And there are mysteries that go beyond what we can ever even comprehend but at the end of the day, we can trust that you are good, you're gracious, you're loving, but you're also just and righteous and holy. And so we worship you for who you are. And we thank you for the, for the comfort that we can take in your goodness and grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.